Hello, and welcome to Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Machion Diagnostics. In this podcast series, we will be discussing thrombosis and hemostasis from the perspective of our host, benign hematologist and medical director of Machion Diagnostics, Dr. Brad Lewis. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. With that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Lewis. Brad, take it away. Welcome to another episode in Blood, Sweat, and Smears podcasts about benign hematology in general to some extent, but particularly about benign hematology that related to the testing we do here at Machion Diagnostics. Today, we're going to talk about choosing the panels for next-gen gene sequencing. Now, this has been a big part of what we've done here at Machion. Our mission from the beginning has always been to think about those tests that matter for therapy, that help to decide when choose a particular therapy for a disease, when you might want to stop a therapy for a disease, help in counseling or prenatal testing, and occasionally help in making the diagnosis genetically. But we look for for tests where it matters for the therapy, and then ideally we look for tests where it not only matters for the therapy, but where making the diagnosis quickly makes a big difference. Gene sequencing has been a classic example of that. When we first started doing our gene sequencing, Gene sequencing could take 120 days and more to get back in, for example, a typical HUS. That's not useful for treating a, a patient or for making the diagnosis in a patient. We look to bring the timing on that diagnosis down. We can now get our test results back in about two days when they're stat, in about five working days when it's not stat. Um, and it makes these clinically relevant tests. And what I wanted to talk about today was how do we do that? How do we, Not how we do the test quickly, that'll be another talk, but um, how do we bring down the panel of genes that we're looking at into a, a manageable number, not missing anything, but still making it manageable enough to get the results back in a clinically meaningful timeframe. And to do that, I wanted to, to introduce James Kane. Jamie Kane, who is the Vice President of Genetic Innovation here at, at Machion Diagnostics. I wanted him to talk a little bit about how he got here, um, but also I wanted him to talk about how he chooses the panels that we put together for our genetic testing. Yes, I'm Jamie Kane. I am the VP of Genetic Innovation here at Machion Diagnostics, and I joined the company about eight and a half years ago. And Mike brought me on to really get our genetics going. Uh, we did a couple of genetic tests back then, but it was really very straightforward. It was, I think, more just a SNP array. And he, Mike was very interested in exploring next-gen sequencing, which was pretty new back then. And so that's how I came aboard. And so for my background, I grew up in the Bay Area, and I ended up getting to college at UC Berkeley. I went in undeclared. I was sort of interested in everything, you know, history, writing. Uh, definitely the sciences and math, but I, I wasn't sure at all what I wanted to do. And, you know, you can come in undeclared, but at some point you do have to actually declare. And so I was reaching that point and I had just taken organic chemistry, which really made a big impression on me. I really enjoyed that class, basically how, you know, learning about the structures of the molecules really informed of how they function and w- really explained things on a large scale, just how, you know, how like your food smells or something like that. And also I did, I did well in that class. I came in thinking I'd be just sort of a mediocre uh, or, you know, above average student, but nothing too special. But with organic chemistry, it really just clicked for me. I think I'm a very visual person and like solving puzzles and pushing electrons. So, and also I think it's taught really well. So I had Carolyn Bertozzi teaching it and she just did a fantastic job. 
And later on, I TA'd for organic chemistry. And actually, all the all the instructors are really good. Um, so I wanted to then decide, well, I guess I should be an organic chemist. However, organic chemistry is in the College of Chemistry at Berkeley, and it's very hard to get into that. So I decided to become a biochemist because that was the next closest thing. And so, you know, then I joined the lab, uh, the lab of Bruce Ames, which again, was just sort of lucky. I didn't even quite realize that he was so famous, you know, set, you know, going over the list of faculty in the MCB department and trying to reach out to them and see who would take on an undergrad. And he replied back and said he would. And so, but you know, that was really important. Uh, it was a great experience. I got to do a lot of Western blots and some cell culture. And then he wrote a very uh, strong letter for me, I believe. You know, I think I did. I was a pretty good student at Berkeley, but I don't think I was top, top. But somehow I was able to get into Harvard. So I, I, I think he had a lot to do with it. And Harvard really appealed to me because this is their um, MCB department at Cambridge. And it's small, but has a diversity of um, different topics they cover. And again, I think one theme is I enjoy learning about many different things. And so that was very appealing. And I joined the lab. Richard Losick, Rich Losick, and uh, there we study bacterial development. So how Bacillus subtilis can, when starved, divides but asymmetrically to form a large cell and a small cell. The small cell will eventually become a, a dormant spore, and the large cell kind of nurtures it before dying. And so, you know, it's, those two cells are genetically identical but have different fates. And so, it's a very simple model of development. So there, I learned all my molecular biology, how to clone things like that. Also, actually, Rich was really great about teaching how to present and how to write in ways that were very compelling. And so I learned a lot from him in many different areas. And from there, I switched gears again and joined a very a new lab. So it was actually a classmate of mine, Ben de Bevor, who became a fellow at Harvard. And uh, so he was starting a brand new lab and I, I joined him. And now is fruit flies, so Drosophila. And we're studying how, you know, basically he had these, it was the evolution of behavior and he had these inbred lines so they're genetically identical and you know since they're fruit flies it's pretty easy to control their environment and just raise them identically so genetically identical raised identically it brings up this nature versus nurture question like will they now behave identically and we found they don't they actually do have different prep you know we were doing very simple assays like phototaxis just do they go to the light or not and so you can actually measure them a hundred times and you get like a score for them and you can find flies who like the, you know most of them like the light but you actually find ones who don't which is interesting and they main, and that's not just like some fleeting thing that particular Tuesday in the lab. Like it's a over their life, they maintain that preference. And so, you know, that was just an interesting thing. So we kind of came up with this idea of like, well, it's nature plus nurture plus noise. There's some noise in how a brain wires up, either the gene expression level or just at the neurons connecting. And that's something, you know, there's something going on beyond nature and nurture to kind of give them additional characteristics that are uh, lifelong. So we kind of call that personality. Uh, in these flies. Uh, ben did really well. And actually now he's a tenured, uh, he recently became tenured at Harvard. So that was my postdoc. While I was a postdoc, I met my future wife while she was finishing doing her residency at the Brigham. And, you know, we were both from the Bay Area, so we both wanted to return. So she got a job at San Francisco General. Uh, and now she works in um, for the state for public health. And, you know, so I came back with her and I was looking for a job. I met Mike uh, our CEO and founder here at Machion. Uh, I met him at a, a biotech mixer and I was just talking about fruit flies. And at that time, Alexion had approached him about whether Machion could do rapid genetic testing for atypical HUS. It would involve next-gen sequencing most likely. And so it's something that was on his mind and he needed someone to kind of 
think about that project. And so he asked me if I could do it. And I said, that sounds very interesting, but I don't think I can do it. Like, I, I don't really know much about next-gen sequencing. I kind of, you know, I read papers all the time that use next-gen sequencing data that's becoming ubiquitous even back then. But, you know, I didn't really know how to build those libraries or really analyze that data. But he was very confident that I would figure it out. And indeed, we did. And that's been a very successful test that we built. And we've made others similar to it. And we're going to kind of talk about that in this podcast. The rest is history. Yeah, amazing. So you, you really, I mean, your timing was sort of perfect because we were just beginning to get really excited about next-gen sequencing in, in clinical medicine. And this notion of, of rapid turnaround gene sequencing, which you brought up really here, was really hadn't come up much yet. I think nobody else was really doing anything quite like that. So you, you downplay it a little bit, but it was pretty exciting really what, you, what you've done. You created something that in the clinical world didn't exist, a test that wasn't of real utility you made useful because you, you could turn it around so quickly. Right, yeah, and that really it's, I should get some credit, but really actually I think Mike and, and you like really recognize the landscape there. So actually, so I looked into next-gen sequencing or you know, a couple different options, a couple different ways you could do it. And I sort of laid them out to Mike and he thought about it and, and one really jumped out as like, this is the way to create rapid turnaround time that's really missing in the clinical world. Yeah, so everything, the technology was there nine years ago to build this and nobody was doing it and nobody just kind of dedicated the workflow to having this rapid turnaround time. And it really was, yeah, it went from one to two months to 48 hours. So it really was profound. And still even today, nine years later, 48 hours is still the best, basically. Once in a while, there are certain institutions that can set the record and do 24 hours, but they're not doing that routinely because we've had doctors from those institutions contact us to do the, our tests because they, you know, it's not easy to do that 24 hour one. Even if you can demonstrate it, it, you can't really do it routinely yet. It really is. So in another podcast, I'm going to ask you to sit down and tell us about what next gen sequencing really is sort of lay out the array of genetic testing possibilities and how you pick one over another. And as much as you're willing to talk about it, maybe even a bit about how you pick the platform you pick and the way you've run things, but that's another talk. But today, I was going to talk a bit about how you make these panels. I have to say, being a clinician, I tend to do everything as sort of, I need one of those. When somebody's having a code, I want an amp of epi. I don't need to know how much it's in an amp of epi. I know that works when somebody's having a code. And when somebody think might have, you know, a, a TMA that's genetic, then I want one of those panels that takes care of that stuff. And I don't really, until I work with Nation, but you know, in my clinician role, I didn't really have to think about what's on that panel. How does somebody decide what tests they're going to give me? And does everybody give me the same things? And I know now that they don't. And you're kind of the man here who puts together these panels. You're given all the different possible genes you could look at. And I just, I wondered if you want to talk a bit about sort of how those panels together. And I'll talk maybe a bit as you, how I think about these panels from the outside. Yeah, so I guess it starts with the disease we're interested in, because there's a whole range of methods and platforms to choose from, and they all have their pros and cons. So it really depends on what you're trying to detect. And so as an example, on one end of the spectrum would be like factor V Leiden. You know, that's just a single variant. It's just a single nucleotide change, and we know exactly what it looks like. We know what that variant is. It's well established in the literature. So in that case, you want real-time PCR. 
Real-time PCR is fast, very sensitive and, and specific, and it's cheap. So that's definitely what you would do in that situation. It's just one variant that you need and you want to do it cheaply and accurately. On the opposite side of factor five gliadin would be whole genome sequencing. You know, this is just sequencing everything. So that's going to be very expensive, very laborious to analyze. There's going to be a lot of data to go through. So there you might do that if you suspected it's a genetic disease, but you really had no other way to, to narrow it down. So I guess you suspect some very rare, perhaps novel genetic disease. And then in the middle, you have all, all the other stuff. So it might be, you know, there are other diseases, say hemophilia, I guess. Here, this one's very well characterized again. It's hemophilia A. We know, okay, we really expect to see some kind of mutation in factor eight. So it's a single gene. So there, you know, when you're at the single gene, you're kind of at a point, I think, where you might be choosing between two technologies here, either Sanger sequencing or next-gen sequencing. So it sort of gets down into, you know, either one might be appropriate. For Sanger sequencing, you'd have to amplify every exon and then sequence those and analyze it. Actually, I guess next-gen sequencing would do the same thing there. Um, so, but then AHUS, the atypical HUS, this genetic panel that we really do a lot of business with because it really fits a certain profile of, it's kind of a multiple genes and you need that result right away. So that's really right in our wheelhouse. When we first came out with it, I think we had a 12 gene panel. Now we have a 20 gene panel. And actually now we're working on the third version of it. That's going to be a little bit larger. Once you're in that multiple genes area, that's definitely next gen sequencing and probably not whole exome because whole exome is going to be, you know, you're going to sequence many hundreds, if not 2000 genes or something, or actually 20,000 genes. You know, some people, you know, this is up to every company to, to make these decisions about how they want to do it, but you could do whole exome sequencing and then just restrict your analysis to the 10 to 20 genes that you're interested in. You know, that's one way to do it. For us, we find that it's better sensitivity, better customization, faster turnaround time if, if we just make a custom gene panel. Each disease that we go after, we decide what genes go into that panel and then make a custom panel around it. So for atypical HUS, Really, we spend most of our time just looking at the literature, trying to pick the right genes, and then making sure we can catch all those potential variants. Let me pause there. Did I answer the original question? Yeah, I think you did. There's going to be, I think, more to talk about it you know, as we yeah. go along. I think AHUS is a, is a great example. You kind of alluded to it earlier on that one could just do genetics looking at every possible the, you know, gene there is. And the problem is it's too slow, but it's even more than too slow. It's too confusing. If we gave out reports that told people, you know, a thousand different variants of unknown significance in this patient, they would have no idea where to go with that information. There actually was an interesting study out of Korea, I think, just recently, the last few months, that looked at shared decision-making between patients and physicians when you're doing genetic testing, that we should ask the patient, how much confusion do you want from me? I can tell you about all these different variants of unknown significance and completely mess up your mind, or I can just tell you what I actually know is to be true and everything else will just kind of ignore. And it turns out people have different tolerances and it's the same for physicians. And what you seem to go after is that sweet spot in the middle. So with AHUS is a great example. There are a lot of genes known to cause AHUS and you pick genes. And then within those genes, there are different layers of variants. There are variants that are clearly benign and variants that are malignant. But then there are these other variants that we aren't so sure about. There are polymorphisms that 
occur more commonly in people with AHS, but clearly don't cause uh, AHS both because of their frequency. They've been studied in, in the families that have it. And then there are other mutations that clearly do cause it. And you've sort of picked among these. My question was, would be sort of how you pick these. And clearly part of it is you go to the literature and you see what other people have done. But looking at other, other labs, some people pick fewer genes than we do. And some people offer occasionally other things that don't really make good sense to me. How do you think through what genes to use? And even in AS, and I think we can talk later about some of the other diseases we deal with, which also present their own interesting to think about. Yeah, it takes a lot of work to do. Yeah, atypical HUS is a good example to talk about all these ideas. And you know, one thing we do actually is not originally we came out with this AHUS panel, but then as we got more experience and feedback, we do know the challenge of diagnosing AHUS is that it's a very rare disease and it looks like many other very rare diseases, each of which has their own optimal treatment. So it is important to make that diagnosis. And, but some of those differential diagnoses are also have a genetic basis. So we then realized actually we shouldn't just sequence for AHUS, but we should also sequence for more broadly the, these TMA diseases. So then we added, you know, something like the congenital Adam TS13 disorder, um, Upshaw Shulman. So, you know, that's just a single gene there, but we added it to the panel because there's some overlap in that phenotype and it would be quite profound actually to find the mutation for an Adam TS13 if you had a patient that you suspected AHUS. So things like that. And then like MMA, CHC gene, and et cetera. So, so that last one's not a small, finding out that somebody has cobalamin C deficiency, the MMTHD gene, completely changes their therapy. They're not going to respond to decubizumab that caused Alexion to want us to do gene sequencing in the first place. They won't respond to that. Same for DGKE, completely different disease, requires an entirely different approach, doesn't respond to the usual therapy. So part of the role of picking your gene panel is to pick those diseases that it's important to know that it's not, even though in these fairly uncommon. And that turns out to be important. And you know, like so many things that we've learned in here, things like DGKE and cobalamin C, we used to say only occur in newborns and really grown-up doctors didn't need to think about it. And that turns out not to be true like everything else. You can get phenotypically milder mutations that show up in older people and look just like the you know, atypical HUSA has. So there is that too to think about these other genes. Yeah, no, exactly. And actually, you know, we've been doing genetics for many years, but actually I still think we're at the sort of infancy of the field. Like you said, most oftentimes, unfortunately, we get these variants where we just can't really say much about it. And also the gene, just appreciating the heterogeneity of the phenotypes, like diseases that we really felt were really classic autosomal recessive and present in early childhood. Well, actually it turns out, you know, if you're heterozygous, maybe you actually make it, you seem totally healthy. And then one day in adulthood, you sort of have like a, a mild phenotype of that disease. And it's kind of missed because everyone assumes the classic presentation. So yeah, we're sort of, you know, still learning all this genetics. There's still so much to learn. And so, yeah, I think it's still very early in that field. So that's exciting on the one hand, there's a lot to do, but it's also can be frustrating because oftentimes you might not get a clear result like you're hoping. Yeah, so it, does, it also means that there's new papers coming out all the time on these diseases. So yeah, it is kind of a distinction between something like maybe hemophilia, which is much more of a classic genetic disease where we have studied it for decades and kind of really know what to expect from it. So you know that one's probably not going to change as much as something like AHUS, where there's 
papers coming out all the time, new mutations and new potential gene associations. Since it is so rare, you do have to kind of tease out, is this kind of a spurious association or does this look like something real? So yeah, that is part of the challenge. So I guess I could talk about that. So we do a lot of, you know, we're always looking at the literature, see what papers are coming out. And when there is a new gene proposed in the literature, we come at it a little bit skeptically because a lot of times the evidence isn't strong. A lot of times it's really just, here's a patient who has AHUS and we did whole exome sequencing and we saw this mutation in this new gene. And so, but you know, really who knows if that's really actually causative. It's hard to prove that. But it's, you know, something we definitely want to note and keep an eye on and see if, you know, now that's been out there, are new papers coming out, things like that. Some studies are strong, like actually with the first one with DGKE, we actually felt the initial publication on that was so strong, it was worth including it right away. And that's because they had a nice family history where clearly that the family members who were affected had the mutations, the family members who were non-affected did not, and they're able to show um, even some mechanisms so they had really strong evidence there. So that one was sufficient. Otherwise, we'd like to see maybe a several papers if they're weaker before we include a gene. What kind of evidence do you look for? So clearly, you know, if, if you mentioned if you can look at a family history and if everybody in the family who gets a certain gene gets a disease, that makes you feel pretty confident that it's going to turn out to be a problem. What other sorts of evidence would you look for? Yeah, it would have to be, um, yeah, if you don't have the family history, then we'd want to see maybe different institutions both finding the same gene so you know in unrelated patients hopefully it's not something that seemed like a broad fishing expedition where they just did whole exome sequencing and came up with something hopefully the mechanism sort of makes sense like yeah it is a gene that's part of the complement cascade and that would be a straightforward one also the types of mutations you see uh you know is it was it a a novel mutation was it a truncation mutation things like that could kind of add evidence that that thing might be causative, stuff like that. What about other kinds of things? What, what about in vitro studies that go along with the, with the genetic study and silica, you know, information suggesting that a mutation yeah. could be pathogenic? How much weight do you place in those? Yeah. In silico, we don't actually put that much weight on. Like in silico algorithms, those are great when you're doing research and you have a bunch of data and you just want to like prioritize or just make generalizations. But then when it comes down to a single, if you just have a single patient or a single mutation, then the in silico algorithms aren't that sensitive enough or specific enough to really make decisions by. So I guess I don't count that too much. Uh, But definitely in vitro studies are very nice. We would love to see more in vitro validation of variants that come up. That would really help us, especially going back to the the variants of unknown significance, the VUSs. Oftentimes, it's just nothing to report. It's like, here's a variant and nobody knows anything about it. Many times there's a variant and we can say it was once seen in an AHUS patient, but, but that's the extent of what we can see. So then you don't know, is that just coincidence? Like it's a sort of rare variant, but not really. But what we would love to see is then that someone takes that rare variant and makes a recombinant CFH protein or whatever gene it was, can then see some defect in the test tube. Unfortunately, that's slow and laborious to clone the gene and then do the assay. Fortunately, it's rare to see that. I think that would be something that'd be really powerful, you know, in the next decade is if someone could, if somehow we could get good at validating variants in vitro and really saying something about it. What is in silica testing? Yeah. Um, so there are these algorithms that try to predict whether a variant is damaging or not. So, you know, we see a variant 
And maybe I should also talk about terminology here because we all tend to use mutation and variant and polymorphism somewhat interchangeably. And in some ways they, they can be totally synonymous, but then they do have their own meanings, I think, in certain contexts. So variant is the most general term and variants can be benign, variants can be pathogenic, variants can be of unknown significance. And a variant just means there's a change in the DNA with respect to the reference genome. And so the change could, again, you know, be totally benign or it could be pathogenic. And the variant could be a single nucleotide, you know, just one letter, or it could be incredibly large, like a whole piece of the chromosome is deleted or duplicated or uh, inverted or something like that. So variants could mean many things. Mutation, it could be totally synonymous. You know, there could be good mutations like we get in the course of evolution. But generally, when we're talking about mutation in, I think, a clinical setting, it often has a negative connotation. So mutation is oftentimes like a pathogenic variant is a mutation. So polymorphism can be synonymous with variants as well. But polymorphism generally in the clinical setting, that's a variant that is more common in the population. So maybe greater than 1% allele frequency. But again, polymorphisms can be good or bad. And generally we think of polymorphisms more as like modifying risk rather than being the real driver, the way that we think of pathogenic mutations. AHUS is a good example, I guess, where we have these polymorphisms in CFH and CD46. And so if you do a large cohort, your cohort will definitely be enriched for these AHUS polymorphisms compared to the normal population. Uh, so they do confer some, somehow some risk of developing AHUS. However, they're not really useful on their own for a single patient because actually 36% of the healthy normal population have the polymorphism. So it'd be hard to make any kind of treatment decision when you know, that's the baseline, but they're real. Like they really are enriched in the, in the AHUS population. Um, and then some variants can be protective. Like if you have this polymorphism or variant, you know, you might be less likely to develop some particular disease. Those are how we think about mutation, variant, and polymorphism. Okay. Right. In silicos, I got sidetracked here. So in silico, you know, we see these variants in these genes and we want to be able to say something about them. And so there are algorithms that try to predict based on those changes, whether it's likely damaging or not. Generally speaking, they kind of look at conservation. They sort of compare the gene sequences throughout evolution. And you can see, you know, certain parts of the gene change really quickly or can tolerate many variants. And so we tend to think then, okay, that part of the gene is not that conserved. So it must be not as important. Whereas other parts of the gene never get altered during evolution or almost never. And so we think, okay, that part of the gene is really important that it stays the way it is. And so if we see a, a novel variant in that region, then it's more likely to be damaging. And so it can make predictions like that, that can be helpful, but I think they're more helpful in a research setting rather than trying to make individual decisions about a patient, just because the algorithms are, you know, 80% accurate. And so it's sort of, you know, interesting and it is additional data, but I think it would be hard to have that be the data that drives your treatment decision. And it wouldn't be enough to convince you that a particular mutation was actually pathogenic just because in silica tested that it was in a study, I, I assume. Right. Yeah. It's just on, on a one mutation on one patient, you know, I, I, yeah, we're just not going to, that's just not enough in silica data. Yeah. 
Those algorithms also look at other things besides conservation. Do they look at the placement of the mutation, whether it affects the protein structure? And yeah, and also look at the original amino acid, you know, negatively charged, and now this variant is making it positively charged because that's a much more drastic change, and it's much more likely to be damaging than if it's a negative amino acid being altered into another negative amino acid. So even though the amino acid is changing. Overall, structurally, it's still similar. So that's going to be more likely to be tolerated. The algorithms will take that into account as well. So we've talked a bit about how you pick what genes to look at and some of the difficulties of doing that. And again, I think AHAS is a, a great example because clearly we aren't looking at the right genes entirely in AHAS. Not just us, but no one yet knows what all the genes are. You know, something like forty or fifty percent of people who clearly atypical HUS will actually have a, a findable mutation that we're able to make any sense out of. The others act like they have a genetic disease. They still have a familial disease, but we don't know what that mutation is. It's somewhere else. It's in some other gene we haven't found yet. What about other things, the you know, intronic, deep intronic mutations that we might not see? When, when would you look at the introns to try to expand out in that way? Good question. Yeah, so when we look at AHUS in that panel, if you look at the literature, there's very good agreement about what the core AHUS genes are. You know, it's alternative complement pathway genes like CFI and C3, et cetera. You know, everyone agrees that those genes show up again and again in, in AHUS cohorts and explain you know, a good chunk of it. Like CFH is the big one. And then you know, I think it's one of these things where there's gonna be a long tail of genes that explain one to 3% of AHUS cases. So then because they're so rare, and AHUS is already so rare, you know, you're looking for a rare cause of a rare disease. So it just becomes very difficult to find those genes, but they're probably out there. And then as you mentioned, the introns and things like that. So even if you had a gene where clearly, like let's say CFH, everyone's certain CFH is involved in AHUS, but actually generally, I don't think anybody sequences the entire CFH gene. And let me define what a, a gene is, I guess. So a gene can kind of, generally be broken into exons and introns and they sort of alternate this exon, intron, exon, intron. And it depends on the gene. There might be 40 exons or maybe there's only one. Actually, thrombomodulin, one of the genes we do sequence for AHUS is interesting because it's just a single exon. So there are no introns, but most genes do have introns. The exons, generally speaking, don't account for much of the gene. Most of the gene is intronic. However, the exons are generally what we sequence and what we think is important because the exons are what get spliced together to create the mature messenger RNA, which eventually gets translated into the protein. So all the amino acids of the protein are coded by the exons. So that's why we tend to care about the exons because a mutation in the exon has the potential to directly alter the amino acid sequence of the protein. The introns can often really tolerate variants because they just get cut out anyways. However, once in a while, there are intronic mutations that disrupt the protein. And generally it's because they disrupt splicing. Let's say the intron in the middle of the gene gets mutated, so it messes up splicing downstream of that. So now the first half of the protein maybe looks fine, but the second half is just totally garbled uh, because the, mess, the mRNA is garbled from that point on because splicing got messed up. There could be a reason to sequence introns because you could have the potential to find those splicing mutations, but they're very hard. When splicing mutations happen right at the exon-intron boundary, those are easy to detect. And so we do sequence those. 
because they're easy to detect, easy to interpret, and they're very easy to say they're pathogenic. But then you have these huge introns, which are actually technically hard to sequence because they tend to be, because they're not conserved, they often just get repetitive sequences are just technically challenging the sequence. So generally we don't sequence introns because they're technically difficult and it just adds a, it really increases the size of your panel tremendously because, you know, most of the gene is introns. So, you know, our total number of bases we sequence might increase tenfold if we decide to include all introns. But then the real reason is just little re return of value in sequencing them because you just can get a bunch of variants. You actually are going to see a lot of variants, but they're all going to be of unknown significance, almost all of them, because introns just have a lot of variants because, again, they're not very conserved. So you just see a lot of variation there. And for 99.9% .9 of it, you can't really say anything useful about it. So it'd be very confusing to return that to a physician. So that's why, generally speaking, we don't sequence deep intronic mutations. Now, there are exceptions. If we see a deep intronic mutation in the literature where there is good evidence that causes disease because you know, they showed it you know, segregating in the family with the disease, or more usefully, they showed actually a splicing defect, which is fairly straightforward to show in vitro. You can just look for an altered transcript size. So in those cases, and DGKE is a good example, actually, where there is a very well-established tronic mutation that that disease, you know, then we include it. It's straightforward to include. So we do look at the literature for these deep and tronic mutations or promoter mutations, anything like that, where it's, you know, anything outside of the exons. When we find those, we include them. It's straightforward to include them. It's just that, unfortunately, they're hard to find. It becomes, I guess, circular, like labs only sequence exons. And so they keep excluding introns because it's hard to interpret, but then we just don't really add to that knowledge very uh, rapidly. So hopefully that'll, that'll be a change that we see over the next 10 years too. It's just more sequencing of more of the gene so that we can build up our knowledge base and include those in the future. There's also other one other thing that we look for in the, in the literature. We first look for what genes are we interested in? And then we look for are there deep intronic mutations or promoter mutations that we need to include? And then we also look for, are there structural mutations, structural variants? So structural variants are large. Most of the time we're talking about single nucleotide variants, but sometimes we're not. We're talking about structural variants. So this could be like a whole exon gets duplicated or deleted, or a whole gene gets duplicated, deleted, or it's a, an inversion. So part of the gene gets flipped around. So all of these things can be very disruptive and definitely pathogenic, but they can actually just for technical reasons, next-gen sequencing can miss those. But if there's a known structural variant, we can then make sure to either design our next-gen sequencing panel to detect it, or we can design a complementary assay to, to, to detect it. And so some examples of this, you know, for AHUS, there's actually a well-known deletion of CFHR3 and CFHR1. It actually, it's a single deletion that deletes both those genes. And if you're homozygous for this deletion, you have a increased likelihood of producing autoantibody to CFH, which can then cause AHUS. So this is a variant that could be missed if you weren't looking for it. But since we know exactly where it is and what it looks like, you know, we can actually see that in the next-gen sequencing data. So that's when we pick up with next-gen sequencing, just as part of that panel. But hemophilia is a, an inversion in one of the introns, actually, there's two inversions, one in, uh, in two different introns, and each one can cause severe hemophilia A. And those actually, 
are for technical reasons, they're actually impossible to detect by next-gen sequencing, basically. And so we've had to create a separate assay that uses PCR and running it out on the gel to detect it, to complement our next-gen sequencing assay for hemophilia. Great. So we talked about AHAS, we talked about HLH. One of the the other problems that comes up that probably doesn't affect your decision-making too much, but in both those diseases, especially HLH, what we know about the genetics tends to come from kids. And then we sort of make inferences, and I think you alluded to it earlier, that maybe mild forms of these pediatric diseases, neonatal diseases, may actually show up in, in older people. And that's turned out to be true in AHAS, and somewhat less so really with HLH, where we do sometimes, but nowhere near as commonly do we find mutations in adults as we do as we do in kids. I assume you put your panel together grabbing from the pediatric literature, and then we just hope that some of those same genes will, will be the adult causes. Yeah, I guess yeah, we look at both. Yeah, we don't have like a pediatric panel and an adult panel. We just have one panel. So yeah, we do just sort of look at all the literature. We look at all the literature that we can find. So it is a lot of reading. You know, and then I think we learn a lot uh, as we do the sequencing. Sometimes we see interesting cases where there might be a pediatric gene, but we're seeing it in an adult patient. And so that actually might be an interesting case report for us to publish and then contribute community knowledge that way. Yeah, so I think we do learn a lot from just running these and talking to the doctors and see what they're seeing and seeing the new publications and just. Yeah, I think the other thing you talked about a little bit um, earlier on with, with AHAS is that when we the panel, you things that could look like the disease. And that happens also in the hemophilia panel, where panel LeBron's 2N looks just like mild or moderate hemophilia. Now, I mean, it can occasionally even be more severe than that. And yet it's an entirely different disease that actually requires a different therapy than the therapy for hemophilia. So we actually, in our hemophilia panel or in your hemophilia panel, you include the, the von Willebrand's gene to look for 2N. That's correct. We do that. And we've seen patients like that where they had been diagnosed with hemophilia, but it turned out they were type 2N von Willebrand's. Some of those patients made a huge clinical difference. And patients who couldn't be managed well suddenly become easily manageable once you realize that they have a different. The only other issue I think that comes up in my mind is platelet panel, which has been difficult to put together. Now, more interesting to put together in the in the platelet function panel, looking at those genetic disorders that cause platelet function defects. In a lot of ways, that ought to be one would hope that would be, you know, the holy grail. That should be what we're looking for in platelet testing. Platelet aggregation studies are technically difficult to do. A lot of institutions don't even have access to them because the samples don't travel very well. They aren't that reliable anyways, really. They're just the gold standard. It's the best thing we've ever had. What you'd like to do is to replace that with a genetic panel. And in Great Britain, they've, for the last few years, been saying that they're on the verge of having a panel that could do that. And it hasn't really played out. I think in most people with normal platelet numbers who have a platelet functional defect, we can't really figure out on the genetics panel what it is yet. I assume some of that is just that we don't have enough data yet from the big studies that are being run on you know, platelet genes and also whole exome you know, studies that are being run. We just don't know enough yet about how to sort that out. I don't know if you have any thoughts about where you think that world is going with platelet functional defects. I don't, yeah, I don't think I have anything too special to say about that. Yeah, I mean, I agree, like, it would be very powerful 
potentially, but yeah, it's been disappointing in practice and you can always hope that it'll just get better as our knowledge increases. And there's, I think, reason to think that. I think sometimes you just need really large data sets to find all the genes and it can be very hard to just put those studies together. Hasn't been much progress so far, interestingly. Yeah, I, I almost want to like reach into the autism literature. Just that it's been a while since I've thought about it, so I don't want to say something wrong. But I kind of think that was an example where they kept increasing the sample size and then just up there, but very large, like, yeah. I don't know, maybe like 100,000 100, patients or something, you know, became very powerful, just this, the, the sheer size of their cohorts. And then they're able to keep finding these these other genes and there ended up being many of them. So I don't know, maybe platelets. Yeah, I just, I guess I just don't know enough to really say something uh, I, intelligent about it, but it might just be that we need more power in the study. Yeah. Yeah. It's or maybe it's just not as, I don't know, maybe it's just not as genetic as we thought it was or something. I don't know. Tegenic in a way we aren't yet able to put together. Yeah. I mean, we do much better with the thrombocytopenias, whereas 80% of kids, at least, who come in with a congenital, or young people who come in with a congenital thrombocytopenia, turn out to have a, a, an identifiable genetic defect, at least in some of the series. So we've done much better there, but not so well yet in the, in the platelet functional defects. I think that's it. Were there any other issues that you wanted to talk about in, in terms of how you think about putting together these panels? Well, we always... Welcome feedback from the physicians. We do try to talk. So the first thing we do is we look at the literature and especially get a starting point. Sometimes there's groups out there like ISTH who might put out a gene list for bleeding and clotting diseases, genetic diseases, and that's a good starting point for us. Or, you know, like I mentioned, clear consensus for what the core AHUS genes are. So that's a good starting point for us. Or C3G, there's this consensus group that had a publication a while ago that listed out those genes, you know, we start there, we do the literature, but then we do want to get feedback from physicians. We find that very useful, especially the key opinion leaders. So I guess anyone listening, if you ever have, if you ever think there's a gene we're missing or, or you have any feedback like that, please contact us. You know, one thing we try to do is be very fast to update our panel so that we're, you know, on the cutting edge there. So any change you suggest, it's something we could, we can implement pretty quickly. Yeah, I would just second that. I think that's been always one of the strengths of Macheon is the speed with which the lab is able to shift gears or add things in or make changes in the way we, we approach things when it looks like it's clinically clinically meaningful. So we're always looking for feedback from people who are yeah. using the panel. Also feedback that's non-genetic. There's some assay that's an autoantibody or, or whatever. Actually, that's a big focus for us going forward is doing complementary assays to genetics. So functional assays that can pair well with genetics. And, you know, so we can offer the whole package. I should also add that this is really a, a team effort here. We have a bunch of PhD scientists, so actually about a quarter of our company, I think, are PhD scientists. And so reading the literature is not easy. And so it's really, we spend a lot of time on that. And so there's many scientists who work on this and, you know, they do all this work of going through the literature, debating what makes the cut and what doesn't. And then, you know, we have to validate the assay once we build it and make sure we're actually hitting all the targets we want. And then, of course, analysis is, is another big piece of what we do. And that's done by every sample we get, two PhD scientists do the analysis there to make sure they come up with the same conclusion and then write that result up for the physician. Yeah, very good. 
All right. Well, thank you again very much. I have to say I've, it's always been a bit of a black box for me thinking about how you could put together a panel for a disease like this. And like you say, it's it, a lot of it's from the literature and a lot of it's sort of that thinking through what makes sense and what, what doesn't and talking to key opinion leaders to get, get some input to what, what sorts of things seem to be working, what sorts of things don't. Uh, so to all of you, thank you very much for being with us on Blood, Sweat, and Smears. And there will be a follow-up podcast to talk about what gene sequencing is about and how sort of how we think through which tests to use. You heard smatterings of that today, that there are certain kinds of defects that don't show up on next-gen sequencing. And we need to go back to other kinds or move forward to newer kinds of testing. We can go in both directions with some of those defects. And then we'll talk about how we, Jamie and his people decide which of those tests to use in individual cases. Again, thank you all very much, and I'll see you sometime later on Blood, Sweat, and Smears. That's it for us here at Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Machion Diagnostics, your reference lab and CRO specializing in thrombosis, hemostasis, and rare disease. Thank you for listening, and if you have a question or comment or there's a topic you'd like Dr. Lewis to speak to, please send us an email to bloodsweatandsmears at machiondiagnostics.com. That's M-A-C-H-A-O-N diagnostics.com. You can follow Machion at Twitter at MachionDX. Be sure to subscribe to stay in the know. Share this podcast with clinicians you think might appreciate it. And we hope you'll join us next time here at Blood, Sweat, and Smears.